Well, you already know who we are. We don't need to do all those radio intros anymore. It's just a yeah. podcast now. So. Welcome back to episode question mark of Hot Girl <laughs> Theory. <laughs> uh, we took a brief hiatus because we were busy being hot girls and theory was on hold. <laughs> so now we're back. <laughs> what are we talking about today? Well, today we have a lovely guest. Is Mimi Vetter, um, who I'll introduce in a moment who is going to walk us through marriage-related legislation, liberalism in the United States, and the relationship between the two, uh, as well as a couple court cases. All right, accurate? so <laughs> we're going to deconstruct marriage today. Yes. <laughs> um, well, I, maybe I should just go ahead with the intro then. Ahem. Is Mini Vetter, most importantly, my roommate, <laughs> graduated from Washington University in St. Louis in 2020 with a degree in political theory and minors in religion and politics, as well as women, gender, and sexuality studies. She currently works as a research assistant at the Communica- Communitarian Network, a think tank in Washington, D.C. This fall, she'll be starting her Master's of Philosophy at Oxford University. And her academic interests primarily lie in the intersection between critical disability studies and normative political theory. And in her free time, when she's not bothering me, is is an avid spike ball player, Connect Four player, and many card game player. And also enjoys doing crafts, limited to, or not limited to, including but not, specifically limited to, (laughs) quilting, printmaking, and sewing. So welcome As to the podcast. As an exhaustive list. <laughs> yes. Range. Thank range. you for having me. I'm happy to be here to talk about deconstructing marriage. Well, yeah. Yay. Why don't you um, tell us about, give us like an intro maybe of the literature that we're going to review. Mm-hmm. And then we can get into some like definitions mm-hmm. and we'll do our deep dive. Sounds good. Um, so... First, we're going to review two Supreme Court cases, the first of which is Lawrence v. Texas, which was decided in 2003, which um, essentially decriminalized sodomy or uh, homosexual sex or lots of different ways to say the same thing. Um, it as there were 13 states in 2003 that criminalized those specific sexual acts within the privacy of people's own homes. Um, And then the second Supreme Court case we're going to look at is Obergefell v. Hodges, a very famous case 2015, which legalized gay marriage in the United States. Um, So talking a little bit about what the constitutional arguments behind those two cases were and how they were Uh, notably different um, how decriminalizing gay sex is actually very different from legalizing gay marriage Um, and then following um, a review of those two cases uh, we're going to get into a uh, more secondary literature analysis of kind of these general ideas um, about what role marriage plays in the liberal state uh, via Tamara Metz's article Towards the Liberal Theory of Marriage and the State, which is found in her um, 
book called Untying the Knot. Um, and she provides an analysis of these general ideas and provides an argument towards the what she calls the privatization of marriage, which is basically untying the knot between the state and um, marriage as a concept in general. Cool. All right. Maybe, yeah, I would love to hear, I guess when we get to the readings, I would love to hear like why you chose or like, Particularly the Tamara Metz reading, like what resonated with you, but we can talk about that when we get there. Um, I thought maybe we could start with some definitions, because I feel like, I mean, none of us are married, I think, right? None of us are married. So I feel like there's just so much. (laughs) I, I have a general understanding that like marriage is a lot about like property and like access to certain rights. But I wanted to like just be more specific, like what exactly do you mean when you say like marriage by the state? And what are the implications? <laughs> Where would I find those? <laughs> Let's look it up, Am actually. Am I supposed to provide those? <laughs> what no. benefits does marriage offer? Yeah. Oh, okay. Now I understand what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, like, what does tomorrow Met say in her paper, for example, <clears throat> about what is marriage and what is not marriage? Okay, so just uh, beginning, as you said, from like a general cultural knowledge, like non-specific, non-legal argument about what marriage is, is basically have this general understanding that two people get married and they may or may not have kids and the state supports that marriage through uh, uh, and encourages it through a kind of like assemblage of privileges uh, bestowed upon married couples by the state. Um, for example, tax breaks that married people might get or um, uh, that married uh, that married people have uh, rights that uh, domestic partnerships might not have or uh, civil unions might not have, um, like insurance, insurance claims and hospital visitation rights and implied um implied paternity and maternity status over shared children and um lots of different specific technical things regarding children property and ownership and other things like joint bank accounts and stuff like that go into what uh we understand to be marriage in the united states today but uh what tamara metz which we'll get to more specifically uh when we talk about her article one of the things that she highlights and i think it's important to understand that before going into the nitty-gritty is that the word marriage especially in the united states is doing a lot of work because it's actually describing two different processes right so it's like what we just talked about was what you think about when you think about marriage in the state. But usually when people think about marriage, right, they think about weddings and uh, walking down the aisle in a church and having a big reception and, like, pro- pro- proclaiming your love and to your betrothed in front of friends and family and stuff mm-hmm. like that. It's like sociocultural events. Exactly. Um, and traditions mm-hmm. that are oftentimes linked to religion right. um, and religious practices. So uh, I think what... Tamara, especially in later chapters, but even in the introduction hints at, is that marriage means two 
kind of distinctly separate things. One as the sociocultural performance that happens. Um, and that can happen in a diverse kind of way as each culture has different traditions, even within the United States, of how they understand a wedding ceremony, the uh, ceremony that initiates a marriage to occur. Um, and then there's this more legal definition of then what does participating in whatever version of uh, marriage your individual culture might have, what benefits do you then get from the state if the state recognizes that cultural ceremony as uh, the beginning of a true according to the state marriage. So basically marriage means two different things and a lot of times we complete the two and we understand them as being one and the same but mm -hmm. I think Tamara and I think it's really important to emphasize that the two are not necessarily linked and that um, especially in the pre-Obergefell times when we were talking a lot about um, the right to gay marriage and whether or not that was a thing. A lot of people were bringing up arguments that for thousands and thousands of years, um, marriage has been defined as one thing between a man and a woman. But uh, what she wants to highlight is that both sides of the argument, both um, either pro or anti-gay marriage, are both trying to facilitate this idea that the marriage is defined as something specific with the implication that it is facilitated by the state, despite the fact that that hasn't actually been happening for 4,000 years as people right. um, like, like right. to claim. Right. Mm. Um, cool. Okay. That, that's helpful because, yeah, I feel like, I don't know, maybe it's because we don't talk about it, but there's just like so many legal implications of getting married that it's easy to forget about that that's really the component of like what a marriage is is like becoming a legal entity mm. on, on its own cool so, so for the purpose of this episode are we mainly going to be talking about marriage as a like as a legal binding thing more so than as a sociocultural event or so I think one of the main themes of this episode will hopefully be teasing out how those two things are, are separate mm. um, and whether or not they are separate and who actually understands them to be two separate things, um, a legal or a cultural thing, um, and which gets into the legitimacy of whether or not the state should be um, the one determining what a proper quote-unquote marriages um but then also i think the other main theme of the article is that um determining the place that marriage should then hold in our sociocultural society absent the legal obligation so basically under uh, analyzing the significance of marriage from both sides and then hoping to reveal how analyzing it from the two different sides from the legal side from the cultural side will then reveal how they are separate got it cool so i guess my question is why did you choose those two supreme court cases because you said you wanted to contrast how the gay sex versus gay marriage um cases are very different so maybe we can start with that yes so the two supreme court cases can I actually start with why I picked this topic in general? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because uh, um, I think that that then gets to the Supreme Court cases. So mm -hmm. in general, I think that this argument, the privatization of marriage, is 
Um, uh, first of all, a necessary building block in a more expanded worldview of decentering the need for the state to regulate the intimate aspects of our life, and basically um, suggesting that we should have a more robust private sphere absent state intervention, and that would benefit um, lots of different swaths of people. Um, and so I think that the privatization of marriage argument is nice because it has lots of these specific legal and Supreme Court cases, for example, and just like legal arguments that go with them that help to facilitate and ground the conversation in real life examples and also helps to um, highlight this difference, which I think we'll talk a, a lot about more after the Supreme Court cases specifically and into the Tamara Metz article is this the difference that I think occurs in uh, liberal theory more generally between equality as a concept that deserves to be protected and privacy um, and how uh, those are two like fundamental principles of liberalism mm -hmm. but that we find that they're oftentimes at odds with one another and that protecting one often requires sacrificing the other and that right. I think in a more general way that the history of the 20, 20th century and into the 21st century in the U.S. has been a shift towards protecting equality um, over protecting privacy which has led to really specific harms um, mm -hmm. and I think that this these two Supreme Court cases and the more general argument of privatization of marriage help to reveal that and how um, perhaps a, the way towards liberation isn't by asking the state to encroach on our private lives in order to preserve some sort of like mythic form of equality. Instead, maybe we should be asking the state to evacuate from our private lives to preserve privacy and so i hope that those two main themes will come out through this conversation and then the two supreme court cases are picked because one lawrence v texas which protects the right to gay sex um is based on the due process clause of the 14th amendment which is essentially the legal justification for privacy in the united states why we have a constitutional right to privacy comes from um, that part of the 14th Amendment, um, and that's what all of the legal reasoning is based on in Lawrence v. Texas, and then in Obergefell v. Hodges, um, you have most of the legal reasoning for that argu legal argument comes from the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, um, which is one of the places from which we derive our constitutional right to equality. Um, anyway, so I think that those two mm -hmm. cases just exemplify this tension between privacy and equality and uh, begs the question of which will steer us towards liberation. Like, should we be continuing to try cases under a privacy doctrine or under an equality doctrine and who will be most benefited by each? Yeah. So just one question. When you say privacy, like, what is the, I guess, like, formal definition of privacy? Is it, like, the right to have... Like, it's very vague, right? Like, is it, like, does it have to do with, like, property? Does it have to do with keeping secrets? Like, what does that mean in practice? Yeah, so I feel like a lot of the times uh, when we think of the word privacy, we think of our, like, specifically our private homes and our right to property. And uh, we think of the Fourth Amendment, the um, right from free and un 
reasonable searches, searches and seizures by the I state, um, stuff like that. But property, uh, I mean, privacy more generally, I understand it. And in kind of the political theory world is understood more as um, a physical space in which the people who are existing within that space experience an absent of state intrusion into that space. So that can look like a, a variety of different things, but a lack of sur- surveillance by the state um, and a lack of state influence all go into those things. Right. So. And then when you think of like domestic abuse or like marital rape, that also gets complicated, right? Because Exactly. So that's that the primary sense. complicating factor into this argument we're going to mm-hmm. discuss here in a little bit. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Well, should we perhaps just get into the um, Lawrence v. Texas case? Sure. Let's go for it. Okay. Do I do I start with that? Yeah. Why don't you lay out like what what initiated this case? What are the two sides? You mm-hmm. said it is already the case that legalized gay sex in mm-hmm. Texas. Yeah. But <clears throat> excuse me. Sorry. Um, yeah, why don't you give us a little bit more details? Yeah, okay, so, um, Lawrence v. Texas was decided in 2003 in the Supreme Court, though, um, the actual event occurred years prior in Houston, Texas, where the police were called to respond to a reported weapons disturbance call, so that was a call made by a neighbor, um, and the police entered John Lawrence, the, um, defendant's home uh witnessed a private consensual sexual act between two men um arrested both under an anti-sodomy law that was in place in texas at the time um and then the uh the case went to court and was tried in a trial court and then in an appellate court and the appellate court um maintained a decision that the Supreme Court had made in the 60s, which was Bowers v. Hardwick, which maintained the criminalization of gay sex. So it said that um, because of this previous Supreme Court precedent that said that the criminalization of gay sex was A-OK, John Lawrence deserves to pay this fine under this anti-sodomy law in Texas. And so then the questions that the Supreme Court um, here is and consider are uh do criminal convictions for adult consensual consensual sexual intimacy in their own home violate people's vital interest in liberty and privacy protected by the due process clause of the 14th amendment and then more generally does that mean that they need to overturn this previous supreme court case bowers v hardwick um so those are the main questions and the facts of the case at play um so i think that Justice Kennedy in uh, the Lawrence v. Texas case gives a really um, gives a really nice and concise definition of privacy at the beginning of his decision, which I think would be uh, really useful to read out now, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Go for it. Um, Okay, so um, Justice Kennedy starts his opinion by saying, Liberty protects the person from unwarranted government intrusions into a dwelling or other private places. In our tradition, the state is not omnipresent in the home. 
and there are other spheres of our life and existence outside the home where the state should not be a dominant presence. Freedom extends beyond spatial bounds. Liberty presumes an autonomy of self that includes freedom of thought, belief, expression, and certain intimate conduct. The instant case involves liberty of the person both in its spatial and more transcendent dimensions. So that is Justice Kennedy's definition of our right to privacy, and he then goes on in the opinion to defend that right, which he includes as a part of that right, the right to uh, intimate sexual conduct within the home, um, which includes gay sex. So um, that is where the um, decision ends up, uh, where they ultimately overturned Bowers v. Hardwick, but I think it would be... Nice to go through a little bit of the legal argument that he, um, that gets him to that conclusion, which is basically he focuses on the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. So if we go and we read the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, it says that uh, the state shall not deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of the law, which is kind of a vague claim, but in Supreme Court, um, and constitutional law in the United States precedent and history, that clause, the due process clause, has been the primary place where um, scholars and justices uh, derive a theory of privacy in U.S. liberalism and U.S. constitutional law because it isn't actually, privacy isn't actually specified in the Constitution, right? So that's where um, you get it from. So then Kennedy goes goes through a genealogy of cases that specifically apply to this like expanding definition of privacy using due process. So he um, cites Griswold v. Connecticut, the right to sex outside of marriage because um, sex outside of marriage <coughs> was at one point in time criminalized. So that mm -hmm. case um, used the due process clause to say actually sex should be private, the home should be private, the state shouldn't be interfering or dictating what is right and wrong, good and bad. Then you have um, Eisenstrand v. Baird, which is uh, the right to contraception, which is also under this expanding right to privacy, mm -hmm. that like, sexual relations um, and whether or not they're procreative should be um, a private act uh, within the walls of the home and not of state concern. And then following directly from that is Roe v. Wade, which is the right to abortion, which is protected by the due process clause's right to privacy. So Lawrence v. Texas is a direct um, result and product of that genealogy, right? It stems directly from those cases, which says that the state shouldn't be involved in our private sexual lives, in our procreative choices, um, and that uh, it has no right to interfere or dictate whether or not certain choices within that private space are right or wrong. Um, and then Kennedy concludes its argument by saying that the most private of human conduct, sexual behavior, and the most private of places, the home, should be protected by the state. So, um, that is the general argument of Lawrence v. Texas, 2003, uh, established sexual acts of basically, of, um, of any kind, but consensual sexual acts specifically between same-sex couples as beyond the purview of the state and protected by privacy. So that's the main conclusion of Lawrence v. Texas. One question I have is just like, okay, like, it's, 
you know, from what I understand about like U.S. Supreme Court cases, um, it's very difficult to get a case to the Supreme Court. It takes a long time to process them, and it's all based on precedence. And so, like all of these cases, like you said, like um, interracial marriage, or I don't know if they, if that also goes into precedence, but like sex outside marriage, gay sex, abortion, like all of that builds precedence and like fortifies those rights over time. Mm-hmm. And so my question is like, I guess just one question is like. Like, where did this, like, anti... Like, literally, I was reading the the amendment. It's crazy. Like, <laughs> just to... This is... Tr- I mean, this is, like... Well, this is sex. So, it's ba- it literally says, like, the penetration... Like, they criminalize the penetration of the genitals or the anus of another person with an object. Like, it's literally written in law. So, like, did, did they also have to go through that same Supreme Court, like, precedence building in order to ratify this into law? And then, like, how did this come to be? Um, yes, no, the, um, the legislation criminalizing homosexual sex in lots of different, because it's, it was never a federal statute, it was always on a state-by-state basis, and they're, they're bizarre and explicit in very strange ways. Um, no, they did not, so, uh, essentially like states make their own laws um however wild and crazy they are and then they go through a vetting process so this is the example of the vetting process of this texas statue which the supreme court then overturned um but um yes i in one of the classes i took in college we talked we went through some of these different statute like state statutes about um criminalizing gay sex and how the word sodomy has changed over time and how like these statutes specifically criminalize sodomy but then they were only ever convicting gay sex as sodomy despite the fact that um heterosexual couples can have um anal sex also and so then how like the word sodomy then became intrinsically linked with um, homosexual sex despite the fact that that's not what the word actually means but there's this like redefining of the term that was happening in american legal history in the 20th century and it all is quite bizarre but then i think it's exactly how bizarrely explicit the statute is that makes it so glaringly obvious that why is the state going through the like why are they like these are the specific objects that you cannot penetrate yourself with it's like why are you making that list yeah exactly which holes are good and which are bad and which things can go in what holes it's like what's going on (laughs) yeah i also wonder um i might be going off on a limb but like when i think about you know the state controlling marriage um i feel like a lot of it has to do with um like when you control marriage you also control the family unit you control like what is a legal unit and you also control um procreation an offspring and Mm -hmm. at least in the context of the united states where it's it was literally like an ethno state at one point Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. you they had to criminalize interracial marriage interracial sex um like, for me, the institution of marriage seems to be built on one of, like, settler colonization, genocide of Native population, and ensuring that you have this, um, this replacement. And so, do you, do you think that this thing with gay sex as well, and the way that we understand marriage and things in the private sphere, stems from this project? 
or are they separate? Yeah, for sure. And I think that we'll get to even more of that when we talk about Obergefell because it's specifically about marriage and not just about sex. But um, I think that one of the interesting things in Lawrence v. Texas is that Kennedy goes into what the origin of these laws criminalizing homosexuality, like where did they come up? And Mm. it's like the vast majority of them popped up in the 70s, right, Mm. in the 1970s um, because... It was, nobody really cared, like, homosexuality was criminalized in its own right, socially, and in other sort of legal functions, right? But suddenly, when you have a counterculture revolution that is putting gay Mm. sex in the popular Mm. zeitgeist ethos so that uh, puritanical Christians now have to witness it, suddenly that is when a crackdown came and a criminalization came, um, because before it wasn't of much concern, right? And so you have things like defining marriage as between a man and a woman that comes from way back, that's related to Judeo-Christianity and um, stuff like that. But the criminalization of specific sexual acts, right? That's not like it was written in, you know, 1624. It's that it came into the cultural consciousness in the late 20th century, and that's when criminalization began. Once again, evangelicals ruining everything. (laughs) I feel like there's a lot of parallels with the anti-transgender legislation that we're seeing today. It's reactionary. It's reactionary reactionary to people's, like, attempts to admit themselves into Mm -hmm. the, like, cultural norm. And then people Mm -hmm. say, actually, no, you're not welcome. Yeah. Right, right. So, yeah, I guess stemming stemming into the... um, gay marriage case what similarities maybe we should summarize it first i feel like everyone kind of has an idea of what um how it went down but maybe we can also do a quick summary yeah quick summary is basically that some states like california but then california took it away and other states (laughs) um had started to legalize um gay marriage and then other states notably uh kentucky tennessee ohio michigan were Mm -hmm. refused to legalize gay marriage then you had the situation of couples that were legally married in one state but where that marriage isn't recognized in another state and so then that creates um a constitutional conflict which uh then takes obergefell v hodges um to which represented a collection of same-sex couples um who were denied privileges in states where they had moved to um that collection of cases then went to the Supreme Court under the name of Obergefell v. Hodges, which was like the um, poster case for the um, group of cases. And so the question that they consider is, the Supreme Court justices consider in that case is, does the 14th Amendment broadly understood protect the right to marry um, when the couple in question are of the same sex? So then the history that um, the justices draw on to reach this conclusion is they go to Loving v. Virginia, which is the interracial marriage case, right? And Mm -hmm. um, they go to um, Turner v. Schlafly, which is um, whether or not you have the right to marry while you're incarcerated, and um, a couple of other cases uh, in that sort of... Um, right to marry genealogy of constitutional law and from that genealogy which uh, both Loving and Turner both relied 
really heavily on the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, came to the conclusion that um, so too does Obergefell v. Hodges fit into the same genealogy where the Equal Protection Clause for these specific couples is being violated um, and therefore uh, gay marriage needs to be legalized because otherwise uh, it would be unconstitutional discrimination would be occurring in the U.S. So that's the... Um, foundation of the legal argument in Obergefell. While they mentioned the due process clause that we talked about in Lawrence v. Texas, the primary um, constitutional precedent comes from, um, like, new precedent that they create in Obergefell v. Hodges comes from the Equal Protection Clause. So reading a little bit what the Equal Protection Clause is of the 14th Amendment is that, um, so we have the state can't deprive people of property without due process, due process clause, and that goes into nor deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So that is the, as we mentioned before, the part of the Constitution that uh, establishes the constitutional right to equality and the foundation of almost every single anti-discrimination law that exists in the United States is based on the Equal Protection Clause. So the argument of Obergefell was that gay couples were being discriminated against because they weren't being treated equally. Yeah, because they didn't have the access to the same rights and privileges that married couples had in Kentucky, Tennessee, Ohio, and Michigan because right. they were gay. Um, and therefore, they... Uh, because that discrimination is unconstitutional, they should have the right to marry. And th that's what the justices um, agree upon. Mm -hmm. um, so, in a tight decision. Anyway, so then this highlights the difference. So you have a due process clause about protecting privacy when we're decriminalizing gay sex. And then you have an equal protection clause uh, being invoked in Obergefell when we're legalizing gay marriage. And how those in my opinion, are significant differences. That protecting one's privacy is really different from asking the state, so protecting one's privacy as in requiring that the state mind its own business and get right. out of the privacy of your home is very different from appealing to the state and asking the state for recognition into this institution um, that it regulates. And right. So while a lot of people think that Lawrence v. Texas and Obergefell are um, working together towards the liberation of gay and queers in the U.S., I think it's really important to highlight how they're actually doing extremely different things right. and that Obergefell actually works in the opposite direction as mm -hmm. Lawrence v. Texas as it's encouraging the state to define aspects of our private lives and important intimate associations and how, as Sharon mentioned and you mentioned, how those intimate associations are then connected to um, procreation and family formation, um, how that should be regulated by the state. Whereas Lawrence v. Texas is saying, actually, I think that intimate associations and the products of those things should not be regulated by the state. So that, that, that's the Got overview it. of the two cases and how I think that they're doing two different things. Fascinating. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I guess a I, I question I have is like, so if you look just like around the, I mean, in, West, in the West at least, the the metric for like how gay friendly this country is is their stance on gay marriage like that seems to be a very common metric why do you think that is 
I think it's because, well, first of all, because people look to the United States as um, the yardstick by which liberalism should be measured and mm. or, like, equality, liberty, blah 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 yeah. So that. Uh-huh. And you can also see the... Um, the relationship between Obergefell and the legalization of gay marriage and neoliberal politics and the relationship between capitalism and marriage, right? So we talked about how marriage, as we understand it, as between the relationship between people and the state, it gives you these privileges where the state right. is directly giving you money via tax breaks to get married, right? right? Which are allegedly supposed to then um, promote family formation and childbearing mm-hmm. and blah, 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 but actually don't serve to do that and just are a direct incentive just to get married. Um, mm-hmm. And then you get all these social benefits from being married because the, the nuclear family and just marriage in general are... Um, kind of prerequisites for admission into a lot of aspects of regular life Mm -hmm. from like um, I don't know just like participating in your community's social life like going to the country club right is something that in like white culture is a married thing to do and like single women single men don't go to the country club quote unquote after a while or even in um, other cultural contexts within the United States you can see uh, how marriage is viewed as a like requirement for mm. being socially acceptable, yeah. right? Or even for example, like even if you're living with someone under some sort of a domestic union for many many years, if you have children out of wedlock, that's still socially taboo. If you're not technically married, there is just like a lot of social implications in terms of this person. These people have a marriage license. And therefore, it's it's defined by the state as one thing, and that's socially acceptable. Exactly. And just uh, other hidden assumptions of, like, if you're a certain age and you apply for a job, and then there's the assumption that your, like, 401ks will then be tied to your married partner when it's, like, actually, no, I'm not married. Or it's, like, um, mm-hmm. other assumptions when you open a bank account after a certain age that you'll have some sort of shared banking or an assumption when you purchase a home that that down payment for that house will come from two joint partners who then have access to the same funds mm-hmm. um and basically the that the state and that commerce in general is tied to this um idea of being married mm-hmm. and if we go back to the difference between state regulated marriage and cultural sociocultural definition of marriage that even the sociocultural definition of marriage is super tied to capitalism and how we're spending our money right you get Mm -hmm. married you spend ten thousand dollars to buy dinner for every single one of your friends and family um they're expected to buy you tons of presents you're then expected to purchase a home and a car and uh participating in marriage is participating Uh in the capitalist economy in Mm -hmm. extremely expensive and specific ways and so i think that Um, The expansion of neoliberal ideology across the globe is um, most easily viewed by the expansion of this gay marriage idea because now, oh, suddenly 10% of society can now participate in this... um, in in this market that they were before didn't have access to right so oh it's like oh we had this completely untapped market of the gays and now they are required to have weddings where they spend tons of money and buy apartments together and Mm -hmm. um adopt each other's children blah 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 and screaming um, (laughs) so i think that that is why we see the expansion of gay marriage across the globe oh my god um 
and why it shouldn't be the benchmark for whether or not a country is quote-unquote progressive um, for that reason. It just means that that country is dependent on American-style capitalism. Right. No, because, like, mm. literally urban planning in the U.S. is based on the, like, nuclear family unit. That's mm -hmm. literally what all of urban planning is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the, it's, it's just very funny because the whole notion of, like, queerness is not just looking at, like, sexuality but also just and, and fem, like queer feminism is like exploring the politics of intimacy and trying to redefine what a family has to be what kinship is mm -hmm. um and actually like using gay marriage as a metric of like queer advancement actually just like boxes you back into this very heteronormative yeah. way of being it falls very flat in terms of actually doing anything that is different or new in terms of the family structure <laughs> Mm -hmm. It's very convenient. Exactly. Yeah. And so then the questions I think that come from these two cases before we get into the Tamara Metz's criticism mm -hmm. um, and her kind of idea of what the solution is, is that uh, I think that there's some, there's a lot of like liberatory potential in Lawrence v. Texas, this idea that uh, we should be carving away more and more space away from the state um, mm -hmm. and its intervention and... Uh, vision into our private lives um so a, a, another example of that would be we have lots of different ways in which to form families and lots of people grew up in mixed families blended families um and had multiple caregivers who served the role of parents but maybe didn't have legal status as such and so i think that lawrence v texas has the potential to open up maybe doors for future legislation or future Supreme Court cases to carve more and more room out for non-normative family structures, which I think it's even silly to call them non-normative because so many people came from non-normative families. It's the norm to be to come from a non-normative family, yeah. to have yeah. a single mom or to have uh, multiple parents or to have uh, parents who weren't your biological parents and blah de blah, mm -hmm. blah And so... Um, opening the door to like different intimate caregiving structures uh, which is something that Tamara talks a lot about so we can um, go into that a little bit more but anyway so I think that Lawrence v Texas is really cool because it allows us to be creative and think about oh like marriage this thing that's just like been a part of United States culture since the beginning like what are ways that we can think about intimate life formations outside of that and think about inside the structure of privacy uh, is interesting, mm -hmm. but then also I think it's very complicated by uh, Obergefell v. Hodges because 2003 when Lawrence v. Texas happened to 2000, let's say 20, um, a year ago, mm. an enormous cultural shift happened in the acceptance of gays and queers into regular life things happening in the world dramatically shifted in those 17 years, right? Mm -hmm. And I would say that the vast majority of that shift happened from 2015 to 2020, immediately following Obergefell. And so you see that, mm -hmm. like, um, 2003, even before that, from the 70s, with the beginning of these um, anti-homosexual sex legislation happened, from the 70s until... 2015, it was uh, the top part of the conservative agenda was anti-gay, anti-homosexual, the uh, nuclear family, blah, 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 blah. And then it kind of seems like 2015, they lost. Um, then they saw that actually the gays provided this 
um, huge new market from which many conservative uh, enterprises could profit. I was going to say the gays are happy to be conservative. And the gays are happy to be conservative. Um, They got more party members. They got more uh, dollars. And so the issue kind of went away. Like, not to say that homophobia isn't still rampant and there are other ways that we don't experience that, but in terms of being a hot political issue, right, the... um, uh, gays being humans, um, it seems to no longer be a question anymore. And so Lawrence v. Texas didn't do that, right? 2004, the year after uh, Lawrence v. Texas, I would say there were probably limited amount of change about acceptance of gays. But 2016 from 2015, um, after Obergefell, suddenly, you know, going to pride parades are the norm and the corporations are all about it and they uh, have their rainbow logos right. and now we're five years out and um, being gay is cool and stuff like that. So the question is, it's like, I see how Obergefell is not the end goal, right? Because participating in oppressive systems and expanding access to those oppressive systems probably isn't the way to go towards liberation. But at the same time, seeing just the number of people who have had the opportunity to be validated and admitted into like regular happenings of life because of Obergefell, um, I think that's also significant. So I feel this like theory versus like lived experience versus practice practice tension in my own life where it's like Lawrence v. Texas is the way to go but also I think gays have really benefited in a significant way from Obergefell culturally yeah Mm -hmm. so I don't know what you all think about that but I that's what I find to be the primary tension here right now I wonder, for me, I don't know, I I feel like it's hard to say if either of the legislation, which one I would agree with more in terms of the way that they approach things. I wonder what other, like, cultural events one would point to also in, like, the mid-2010s that also helped along the general acceptance of gay people and, like, gay society, um... In the U.S., at least. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think, but I'm not sure. <laughs> Lil Nas X. I'm kidding. <laughs> Lil Nas X. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, 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 it's basically an absorption, right? It's like something that used to be considered other becomes absorbed, and now gays are free to be conservative or democratic, and that's basically what mm-hmm. equality is. You get... To you get access to rights and yeah. you get to be seen as neutral. It is really interesting, yeah. I'm just like, I'm wondering, <laughs> yeah, based on this assimilation. Yeah, assimilation, It's like, yeah. I wonder why not in the, like, 80s or 90s or 2000s, why they didn't just think these people could be a market for us or these people could be party members for us, therefore it makes more sense for them to be on our side than for us to be against them. Mm-hmm. I guess it's like a push and pull of like culture. Like the U.S. is still a democracy, so you still need the the um, approval of the majority, and so you need to use like the right moment. And I, I don't know, maybe like it also makes I think because the it's in what the conservative agenda was in the eighties, Reaganites, right? Mm. That's the big shift into. 
um, evangelical economics (laughs) happening then, where uh, Reagan is now bringing to light the nuclear family, reigniting it as something important for American democracy, right? So it was all about being anti-gay, is the reason that the conservative party was even a success in the 80s, right? And so just, like, riding on that, that it was more profitable for them to... Um, see themselves as anti-gay because that mobilized their base than mm-hmm. to try to collect the gays. Um, but then I think, um, like, the way that, not to answer my own question, but <laughs> the way that I think of the tension between the two is thinking about uh, the people who Obergefell leaves out, um, right? So the, what's her name, Mohan Chi uh, wrote this article called Under Western Eyes where she... Um, presents her margins to center versus center to margins mm. um, idea so which, which is, could you expand which yeah I'll, I'll explain <laughs> um, is so basically you draw a circle and the circle has a point in the middle um, so basically the point is your normative subject so in the US it would be like a, a middle-aged white tall uh, cisgendered <laughs> straight man mm-hmm. um, and so basically laws in the U.S. were made around that normative subject mm. to which everybody who didn't fit into that norm was just left out. And then slowly over time, uh, we started to expand concentrically around that norm towards the edge, mm-hmm. right? So then we added, um, we added women to the mix, we added black people to the mix, um, and other non-white people to the mix. We're slowly expanding out from this normative subject to a slightly different modifications of the norm um, as it gets bigger and bigger. But that margin is still pretty far out because there are a lot of people who are still being left out of being citizen subjects, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the way that liberal politics works. Yeah. And so then she says that an alternative is to go margins of center. So to try to imagine and find in society Mm -hmm. the, the people who... Uh, experience the most harm, the people who are the least represented, and who are the most dissimilar from the normative subject, and um, going to them and asking them what institutions would make life livable for you. And so that's margins to center. Creating those institutions first, and then um, an institution that will help the most marginalized, the most privilege will necessarily be able to fit into. Mm-hmm. Um, so margins to center versus center to margins. So then Obergefell falls into this category, right? So it's uh, marriage is the norm, is the point in the middle. Mm-hmm. And then we're adding a little concentric circle around right. it, uh, heterosexual marriage, and then we're adding homosexual marriage, right? But the margin, it's still pretty far away. And thinking about who are all the people in between the margins. So I mm-hmm. think the most obvious example is trans people right. Um, right now who are clearly excluded from this Obergefell v. Hodges liberation victory, right? Because their um, existence as humans is still, for some reason, a political question, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so thinking about the ways in which Obergefell has failed specific people um, and has actually perpetuated harms against those specific people, I think helps to recenter my thoughts on how... Like your own personal My feelings. own personal feelings about... Um, the like, wins for Exactly. The, that the freedoms that I feel in 2021 versus 2015, mm. right? That, that win that I personally ha- feel like I can experience 
every, not everybody is experiencing it. And that's mm-hmm. a, a way to, I think, check ourselves from complacency because um, it's a way in which to make theory realign with praxis because it's just like, because it's not, because theory and my own praxis weren't, were kind of in collision with one another. But then understanding that that's only the case because I'm extremely close to the normative subject point in the middle of the circle mm-hmm. um, and that it actually can align much more clearly for those who are closer to the margins. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like rising tides raise all boats. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I guess this could be a good paper for us to talk about the Tamara. Yeah, I feel like we should get into the Tamara Metz, Tamara Metz paper. <clears throat> yeah, so the Tamara Metz paper is basically her argument uh, about the privatization of marriage. So she highlights that um, that there's a the, this difference between legal marriage and cultural marriage that you could have, for example, a religious ceremony that isn't um, respected or accepted by the state, um, and vice versa. Um, and so that highlights the, you know, separatedness between those two, like we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, and then her argument is basically that, um, the tenets of liberalism, if we really analyze them closely, which she takes to be, um, liberty, equality, stability, um, are the, what she thinks are the three main liberal commitments. Mm. Um, that if we really analyze those in the context of state-sponsored marriage, that it reveals an inconsistency. Mm. That state-sponsored marriage actually works against these three liberal commitments and therefore is, um, in conflict with the liberal project in, as a whole, and it, in order to resolve that tension and, come back to a more truly liberal society we should privatize marriage and basically eliminate state sponsorship from it and then in latter chapters which we didn't read she presents her a more comprehensive understanding of how the state should encourage and protect caretaking Mm. um caretakers the people who are recipients of care um and the ways in which people come together in groups to provide care for those who need it um should be protected by the state, but that should be separated from marriage as a strict category, specifically a one that happens between two people because caregiving structures are so complex and why is the state privileging and prioritizing marriage instead of, which it doesn't really seem to have a lot of skin in the game about beyond capitalism, and instead privilege and prioritize using caretaking structures, which the state seems to have active interest in, you know, its future generation and the welfare of its citizens are directly tied to that. Anyways, so that's basically the, uh, the goal of the Tamara Metz article. Mm -hmm. And, um, she says that, um, she goes back to, uh, like a classic heuristic in liberal theory, which is this public-private divide, mm-hmm. and she acknowledges that a lot of feminists want to challenge this public-private divide, right? Um, right. So the personal is not political. The classic feminist second-wave feminist slogan um, right. is an uh, argument against 
there's uh, this difference between public and privateness. Um, she says, I recognize that, but also it's important to stick to the public-private divide, whatever. And so she says that um, uh, the state should aim for neutrality with respect to matters that do not impinge on the physical and material well-being of citizens. That's not her idea. That's John Rawls, who's like the uh, contemporary slash modern father of liberalism. And so she says that since uh, marriage does not impinge on the physical and material well-being of citizens, the state has no right to interfere in it and should be neutral towards it. So it should basically butt out. Um, ultimately, I think that her... Oh, yes, sorry. I have a question. Can we just backtrack a little bit? I'm, you as a political scientist, how did you find liberalism? Question one. And then question two, in tomorrow next's um, uh, yeah, text... She, mm-hmm. she she constantly talks about liberalism with like within the context of a diverse society. And when she says diverse, I'm assuming issues of identity, race, and you know liberalism today um, is very different than what it was in the French Revolution. And because yes. precisely because we take these things into account. So like, how do you define liberalism? And then how does how has it evolved since the French Revolution? Yeah, so there's lots of different definitions of liberalism, as you mentioned. Um, The one that I like to default on, and the one that Tamara defaults on in this specific text, is the Rawlsian definition of liberalism, which he first develops in a theory of justice, and then uh, continues to develop in political liberalism. And so... Returning to the Tamara quote, it's a she. This is her rearticulating John Rawls's argument, which is the state should aim for neutrality with respect to matters that do not impinge on the physical and material well-being of citizens. So basically, uh, John Rawls says that the state uh, has a an obligation to be big enough to protect um, people's well-being and material interest and physical interests like the safety, security, equality, blah 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 blah. But beyond those matters, uh, the state has no right to impinge on um, people's privacy beyond that. Um, And, yeah, that's pretty much it. So is uh, this like a democratic state, like an elected state? Yeah, liberal democracies, broadly speaking. Okay. Um, And... Yes, so that's the that is what the contemporary definition of liberalism is, circa nineteen eighty and beyond ish. Okay. And then people like challenge Rawls's definition of liberalism, but that is what Tamara goes on, and that's what I kind of go on. Then you have other definitions of neoliberalism that we talked about earlier, which is how liberalism has developed in the twentieth and twenty first century to become increasingly dependent on capitalism and capital in general, and we see that. through different examples like we talked about the marriage um equality being an example of that um and yes there was what was the second part of your no no you addressed it yeah how it's changed i suppose yeah um okay because i usually I, i like what i would tie to liberalism is like more like core things like the separation of a private and a public sphere mm-hmm. and these division between political and apolitical things 
but that yes. might be more. So the all case. of those things, no, 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 all of those things um, are the implicit results of this definition, mm. right? So that it's right. like if the state is only allowed to interfere in things that are specifically concerning the physical, material well-being of its citizens, right? That's saying that the state exists within a, a bounded area mm-hmm. um, defined specifically as this one thing, and that the state is not allowed to participate in this everything else basically right so that creates a public and a private a political and anti-political where the state can interfere and should interfere and where the state should not got it cool and so then she goes on to say i think this is the most interesting part of her argument um is her which is like a paragraph Mm -hmm. is her implicit her she pre her preemptive sorry preemptive defense against claims of libertarianism right Mm. so she's like i just want to be clear that my argument for the privatization of marriage is not one is not a libertarian argument she's not saying that the state should be as small as humanly possible that it has almost no responsibility towards protecting its citizens as the libertarians claim she's saying that marriage is one aspect in which it actually doesn't make sense for the state to be regulating it but that the state is still responsible to uh, protecting and defending the physical and material well-being of its citizens even within private spaces so then this gets to the comment about uh, the tension between creating a really robust private realm outside of state intrusion and then problems of gender-based violence, Mm -hmm. right? And so it's like um, that you could draw a line from a lot, uh, not a direct line, but a little bit of a curvy line up um, from from second wave, third wave, mainly second wavey feminist movements, the personal is not political, that really focused and hammered home on the problem of marital rape Mm -hmm. and this process of increasing state intrusion into private spaces as we progress through the 20th and into the 21st century, right? So I'm not saying that it's a necessarily a cause and effect situation, but they're, they're working together in a corollary effect where um, that, that the argument that the state should be protecting women and vulnerable people who are being harmed in private spaces ultimately has resulted in uh has produced the a situation where uh our private spaces are being uh disintegrated so then we have this situation where we have a puzzle we have lawrence v texas and its liberatory potential of um spaces without um state intrusion where gays can have sex however they want to have sex right and then a potential of if that space actually gets too large then what happens when vulnerable people Mm -hmm. seek protection from the state for harms that they Mm -hmm. are um experiencing in those private spaces so that's that's the fundamental conflict again to answer my own question i think (laughs) that that conflict is a little bit less on the forefront for me because i think harms being perpetrated by the state against marginal populations are far uh are equally and significantly and visibly apparent Mm. uh right now and that uh this um fear that um 
harm and violence will exponentially increase as we continue to give people their privacy back um, is perhaps a easy way for capital L liberals who are really interested in expanding liberal state power to get out of this question of whether or not we actually have a right to private spaces and mm-hmm. living life out under the right. out from under the state's eye and supervision. Yeah. I actually think MC you pulled out a very interesting quote. I think it was you MC this, that pulled out this quote, right? Um on the notion that um you have to have a, an ethical authority of a state for yeah. um kind of the the notion that Ismini is laying out to make sense. Do you want to which read the ties quote, in maybe? Yeah. So the quote from the Tamara Metz paper is the unique transformative potential of marriage depends on the recognizing authorities functioning as an ethical authority, which in turn depends on a shared comprehensive account of the interconnectedness of the re- regulated individuals and the regulating community. And Ismini, I think you're making a very good point actually about I mean obviously it's very important to protect people who are experiencing harm on the interpersonal level but it's also really important to understand how much harm that the state actually mm-hmm. enforce i don't know pushes upon people yeah <laughs> perpetrates upon people's lives and also the huge differentials in powers that exist between of course the creation of a state and any one particular individual and not to get into all of the abolition rhetoric but I mean, <clears throat> the existence of an unethical state or an unethical authority also amoral, lays the groundwork. <laughs> an amoral authority like lays the groundwork and honestly is a, a model for the way that individuals then treat each other and abuse one another regardless. It's also like who, like when you say like the state protects, I mean, I'm coming from the assumption that, you know, a state, like, definitions, like, a state has a monopoly of violence. A state um, is there to protect private property, and it mostly uh, takes a punitive form. When you say protect mm-hmm. rights, a lot of the times, it means criminalization. That's, mm-hmm. in a bureaucratic state, that's the most obvious. Maybe it's not the only way, but it's the most obvious one, which is very much the opposite of what abolition advocates for, and actually mm-hmm. makes space for these nuances in, in like, what happens in the private public sphere not being very clearly distinguished. But then mm-hmm. the issue is you are that then you do need an ethical authority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. And I think that even I think that the question of um, recourse against perpetrators of violence and uh, and support for um, survivors of violence is one that exists within um, like abolitionist frameworks and within liberal frameworks and in our current society. That that's a question that that no political theorist or sociologist or philosopher has come to some sort of a neat conclusion against, right? Because violence people will continue to experience violence mm-hmm. um, no matter what political system they choose to participate under and or happen to find themselves existing under. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so 
thinking about ways of harm reduction and survivor support and accountability and reciprocity, I think are like important conversations pretty much no matter what your political ideology is, but also an important way to contextualize like who should, uh, how should we analyze the systems that perpetrate harm and hold them accountable is like, it's an important conversation no matter what context you're living in. Another not question. To... Oh, go ahead. Oh, yes. Go, no. ahead. go ahead. I was going to say, I don't want to uh, pivot the conversation too much. So maybe, I don't know, we'll see. We'll come back to your question, MC. But as I was reading this paper, um, this paper was, or the, her book was published in 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of also touching on our point before about the, the massive changes that have been made since 2015 mm-hmm. um, on a legal and societal level. Do you think that there are portions of the, at least the text that we read, that could be revised in the wake of, like, just everything that's happened since 2010? Oh, absolutely. Like, I think, um, Tamara, I haven't done a lot of looking at her CV. She works at Reed College now, so she's not required to publish a lot, but I would Mm. say if I were talking to Tamara right now, I would say that she's probably interested in some sort of a theoretical analysis of legislation and that has come out since, so of Obergefell and how it fits into her argument, which mm. I think it actually fits in quite neatly um, in general. But also, I think my personal issues with Tamara's argument uh, wouldn't be adjusted in if she were to write the book today. Mm. So, like, my critiques of her argument are, like, uh, an assumption that the privatization of marriage uh, is a project towards producing equality in society. Mm. So, um, and I think that's her dependence on this, like, liberal tradition, is that equality is a core value that's um, held up kind of above all of the other ones. and so I think in the Lawrence v. Texas versus Obergefell, you kind of see this tension between privacy and equality, right, that we talked about. And so Tamara doesn't talk about privacy outside of her use of the word privatization mm. right, of marriage, right? She's not talking specifically about um, endowing people with the opportunity to experience their private lives more robustly um, because she focuses her argument in these liberal terms of um, equality, so I think that there's limits to equality and that equality probably isn't the goal um, and that efforts to ensure equality are usually bad. Um, but that there's a lot of liberatory potential in privacy and that privacy is a liberal, um, it's also, it's another tenet of liberalism, right? It's just oftentimes uh, superseded by people's interest in preserving and protecting equality. So, um I would say that Tamara still has an interest in fascination in equality and thinks that the privatization of marriage is still a good idea for those reasons. Um, I agree with her end um, proposal, though I disagree about the justification by which you should get there, if that makes sense. I feel like I'm also slightly confused about like what for her is privatization of marriage. Is that just to say that regular citizens and individuals 
like, is it in line with the Lawrence paper or the Lawrence case where the state just doesn't define at all what marriage is or is that like regulated by just individuals in society? Yeah, her book outlines uh, what it looks like more. So basically, to summarize it, a mm. Tamara Metz world, United States, would kind of look <laughs> like if you were Christian and you wanted to get married in your church um, to who, whomever, mm-hmm. um, you would do that just as you would today. But in the process of doing that and having your wedding in the traditional Catholic church, whatever, you wouldn't also send a license petition to the state to be uh, signed, sealed, and delivered back to you, right? Mm-hmm. And right. that you then wouldn't, when you're filing your taxes, file as a married person, right? And then if you were to have children, you wouldn't get tax breaks continue to get tax breaks as a married person to feed those children. Instead, you would file to the state as a parent um, Mm. to be recognized by the state as a parent, and then you would get specific privileges and incentives from the state as a parent Mm -hmm. um, or other caretaking structures. So you would apply to the state um, for recognition as the caretaker of an elderly person mm-hmm. or as of a person with disabilities and that the state would then recognize that and support that in specific ways. But, and so instead of the, the, um, instead of privileging marriage as some, some sort of a umbrella category for all of these intimate caretaking, um, mm-hmm. responsibilities, because that's actually not where the caretaking is happening. Mm-hmm. Instead, directly, uh, privileging caretakers yeah. and the people whom who are receiving that care. So that's kind of what it would mm. look like more. Okay, yeah. I and guess... What was your question? It's exactly what you, like, well, the same thread that you brought up, Sharon. Because I'm thinking, like, you know, uh, hundreds of years ago, the church was the regular regulating authority. Like, mm-hmm. they would define marriage and they would also enforce it. Um, and then now you have, like, those separation of public and private and then the state takes care of the public i suppose and then the church takes mm-hmm. care of the private but you know the, with secularism you are have like because the church does not have that much of a presence in people's lives um and you're having a more secular society the defi- the very definition of of marriage also gets secularized like most people mm-hmm. today they're not i, I don't know I, I maybe maybe i'm wrong but like most people are more less likely to be tied to a church, less likely to have an organized mm-hmm. religion. And so it seems like the institution of marriage in itself as a whole is totally, def- is becoming like mostly defined by the state. And when you remove all of these benefits, when you remove those tax breaks, those social security laws, those um, like, right, like inheritance norms, etc., mm-hmm. how much of the marriage institution will you have left? Maybe this could also be like maybe the reason why the state is so invested in maintaining it is because if they if they dis- if they privatize it it's it might not exist anymore because our generation is already experimenting with so many different forms of like kinship forming um mm-hmm. shared living that mm-hmm. the whole institution of marriage might be do you think that that's the case or is it strong like a strong enough cultural norm that it would continue even without the state well from a 
I feel like that's a sociological question and perhaps yeah. a historical question of analyzing trends in people's <laughs> practices, which is something I, I'm not familiar with and so don't it's outside of her purview. do in my work. <laughs> uh, for tomorrow, though, uh, for political philosophy or political theory, um, I think that she would respond to your question by saying that it doesn't really matter either way because even in a society, which I would argue is the society we live in today, where the majority of people are religious or identify as religious, even if their behaviors of practicing that religion have changed significantly in the past 50 years, um, people who, the majority of people would prob- in the United States would probably <coughs> identify marriage as something that's important to them, mm-hmm. right? Even in that society, which I'm saying is our society today, <laughs> It doesn't matter for her argument for privatizing marriage because she's saying that marriage should be a deeply personal and spiritual thing, that mm-hmm. it's about your relationship to your God or your community or your tradition, yeah. right? It's about participating in, in, in a sort of family forming that your parents right. participated in because that's what you find important to you if it does, right? And so that there's room for all of that and for a really robust understanding of marriage, for a deep uh, connection to tradition and culture, whatever that may be. Um, it's just that it it need not be regulated by the state and it's actually right. incongruous for it to be because it prohibits for these it prohibits people who participate in different forms of tradition from experiencing those mm. traditions fully, right? And so, right. Um, like... Uh, so going back to what a Tamara Metz world might look like today, um, if I wanted to co-parent my kid with two other people, right, and we wanted to share a home together and have parenting rights to each of our three kids, right, in a Tamara Metz world, we would be able to apply all three of us together for a mortgage license on a home, right? We would all be able to sign the the permission slips for all three of the kids who we care for um, when they go to school. And just, like, little things like that that mm-hmm. add up to um, either demanding a normative um, nuclear family or allowing room for for new kinds of, and new and old, just unrecognized forms of kinship and intimate right. caretaking bonds. And I think this also just very much ties back to abolition because abolition is very much the idea of bringing accountability back to the community and um, mm. fighting against this like alienated, isolationist, modernist view of life where like the state has a bureaucratic yeah. state interferes. You just with... like give all your problems to the state and exactly. then they solve everything for you by cracking down on your life. Yeah, basically. <laughs> exactly. And it's just like a... Uh, In my own work that I'm doing now, I've been doing a lot of reading about the difficulty for queers uh, to go through IVF cycles and to procreate in general because um, so many uh, barriers have been put towards adoption for Mm -hmm. um, gay and lesbian couples in the past and even today. And just like the the weird bizarreness around assumption of parenthood and how like um, it's so expensive to get sperm from sperm banks so then a lot of lesbian couples will have friends who will donate their sperm but because that friend donated their sperm even if they have a contract that um, that friend, the donor, 
um, has no parental obligations, the state doesn't recognize that. So then there's this situation where if um, where the state then mandates that the quote-unquote biological father then has parental caretaking obligations for this child that he helped create despite the fact that he is not that child's parent and all of these other bizarreness things because the state is is framing everything in terms of heterosexual marriage and procreation instead of allowing room for um Parents who want to care for the kids that they have, allowing them to do to that do to that. the the fullest right. of their abilities, which just seems bizarre. So, mm. yeah, I mean the the whole thing of like parenthood and childcare, like this is a whole other kind of worms, but it, it has everything to do with um, again like the history of the U.S., um, the mm-hmm. history of of European imperialism in mm-hmm. forming ethno states, in destroying, in genociding certain cultures, and controlling. Like, who gets the right to be born? Who gets the right to con- continue their lineage based on some weird, like, blood race um, mm-hmm. idea of, like, eugenics? Um, yeah. Or just even the basic notion of, like, what is the family supposed to look like is very much defined by colonial structures. Mm-hmm. What is memory? Like, what is, yeah, ancestry? What is what is us versus them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that maybe we will wrap soon but are there any takeaway um i don't know maybe even questions or notions you would want listeners to hot hot girl theory this episode to ponder walk away with etc um yeah i think that This is just one of several examples of the way in which the modern liberal state has wiggled its way into our personal and private lives without us kind of really noticing, caring, or questioning. And so thinking about the other ways in which the state intrudes on your privacy in ways that you might not now notice is an important daily exercise in, in thinking about how we can reclaim power and agency over our lives and imagine future worlds um, that redistribute power towards individuals and respect and prioritize uh, the privacy of individual and community and family and intimate bonding situations in general. Well, thank you again, Ismini, for giving us your evening. Thank you for having me. Oh, before you go, is there anything you want to plug? (laughs) Um, Actually, there is. (laughs) I have a um, newsletter slash blog that can be found on my personal website, isneenevedder.com. That's Mm -hmm. I-S-M-E-N-E-V-E-D-D-E-R.com. And of course, as always, we'll put it in the show notes. (laughs) And it's called The Ostrich Forum, which is essentially my hot takes about the world and reviews and cultural and literary criticism, um, which has been on a brief hiatus but is soon to return, so subscribe. (laughs) Yay. I mean, everyone has to take a little break every so often. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, thank you. Thank, thank you for you. joining us. Thank you so us much. And- this was so enlightening. <laughs> <laughs>